Well, today is Transfiguration Sunday, and we've just heard the story from Luke's Gospel. Um, Jesus is there up on a mountain, and he's there with Peter and James and John, and he's transfigured before them. This fancy word for God peeling back the curtain of reality for a moment, and the eyes of the apostles are opened, and just for an instant, the true identity of Jesus in all his glory is shining before them. I I love that description. He's as bright as lightning. That's really bright. The transfiguration is a revelation of reality about Jesus that shows us his divine glory and his authority. And while Jesus is glowing in this blinding light, the voice of the Father says, you know, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to what he says because what he says has authority and has power and it reveals the character of God. The transfiguration of Jesus on that mountain was a visible and audible revelation of Jesus' glory. But in a very significant way, the teachings of Jesus are also revelations of God and his character After all, we find out in the teachings of Jesus what God cares about, what's important to him. And the Lord's Prayer is a unique element of Jesus' teaching because it's so intimate. If you just think about it this way, like if you're talking to someone about the Bible and you're, you know, maybe you just read some random text and you're saying, what is the meaning of this and what do you think that word means? I mean, that's, that's one level of intimacy. But then when you say, hey, let's pray together, all of a sudden, like, that's next level. Because when you start to pray about the things that are on your heart, you know, it, it can get real, real fast. And so Jesus, in sharing this Lord's Prayer, is being intimate with us. And he's teaching us how to address God the Father. And in these six main stanzas, of the Lord's Prayer, we just learn so much about what God cares about, what is important to him. In fact, like we've been doing throughout this whole series, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. It'll be up on screen here in a minute. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now over the past several weeks, we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer, and we're learning not only what the prayer means, that's, that's important to unpack the meaning of the words, but we're also learning, I think more importantly, or at least my intent in preaching this, is, is a better way to pray. Each stanza of the prayer is a jumping off point for more prayer. So we just prayed about Ukraine and that crisis. That's a great example. So like when we pray, Father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we can be praying, Father, your kingdom come in Ukraine. The kingdom of justice come to the leadership of Russia. Your kingdom of justice and shalom come in this time of oppression and evil. Father, bring your kingdom. Like, that's a great way to pray. Each week we've been adding our prayers. That's what these are here. 
to the Lord's Prayer. Elizabeth has been sewing these together at home and bringing them to us for this visual display. And we're creating a communal prayer from our congregation. So at the end of this series, I'll I'll email that out to us all and we'll have this uh, beautiful prayer from Lettered Streets Covenant Church based on the Lord's Prayer. And this evening, we're gonna be focusing on the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, in order to get at the heart of what Jesus is inviting us to pray, we need to dig into two terms that we might take for granted at face value. And those words are forgiveness and debt or debts. Let's start with debt. Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, depending on the translation that you read from at home or even in the Pew Bible, you'll see forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins or forgive us our transgressions or forgive us our trespasses. Maybe if you learned, learned it in that way. Um, those are all valid translations. But why have I chosen to translate it as debts? Well, first, let's just dig in a little bit. If you want to nerd out with me just for a second, um, let's dig into some of those other words. The word sin, forgive us our sins. Why isn't it forgive us our sin? Well, the Greek word for sin is hamartia, and it's all over scripture, and it means an offense against God or an offense against people. Hamartia, sin, that's not the word used in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, So that's one reason I'm not translating it that way. The other word, transgressions or trespasses, there's a Greek word for that too. It's peripatoma, peripatoma. That's that's another word for sin, but most often used as an offense between people, okay? Um, That's the word used in verses 14 and 15 in Matthew 6, um, which we'll get to in a little bit later. But it's not the word used here in the Lord's Prayer. Here in verse 12, the word is neither hamartia, sin, or peripatoma, which is transgressions. It is aphelemata, which you don't need to remember that, but it's just kind of fun to say, aphelemata. It occurs twice in verse 12, which is the Lord's Prayer section that we're looking at, and nowhere else in the Bible. (laughs) Great. It does occur other places in first century Greek literature, but it doesn't occur uh, elsewhere in the Bible. Where does that word come from, you might ask? It comes mostly from the business sector, and it was frequently used during Jesus's earthly ministry. Most narrowly, that word means financial debt, but it can also refer to, and often does in first century writing, refer to a person's moral or ethical debt or responsibility. So by using this word debt, Jesus is not only talking about finances, but also our moral and ethical debt, you might call that sin, to God and to each other. And what is this debt we owe? What is this debt that we're asking God to forgive us from? We could get into the weeds with this one, but I kind of want to be simple and truthful. So uh, I'll I'll rely on um, our good friend Daryl Johnson, who sums it up in one word. He says, the debt that we owe God is obedience. Obedience of faith. See, we were made to live in a faith, that means a trust relationship with God. God, our Father, has our best interests in mind. He calls us into this loving, living relationship with him, and with other people, and he gives us guidelines on how to do that, how to thrive in our relationships with him and with each other. Um, if we trust him, we, we 
strive to kind of follow those guidelines of faith. So like the Ten Commandments would be a good example. You've got this people coming out of slavery. God wants to teach them what kind of people he wants them to be, and he gives them some guidelines, like here's how you do it. You don't worship idols because I'm the only one who's real. I'm the only one who's really gonna love you, so don't worship idols, and you don't kill each other, and you don't uh, break your marriage relationship, and you don't covet your neighbor's this or that, okay? So here's some guidelines on how to be in right relationship. But I, I always tell us, right, like the best way to interpret scripture is to start by interpreting it with scripture. And we could jump to the Ten Commandments, and that would be true, but where is the Sermon on the Mount? It's in the center, I mean, the Lord's Prayer is in the center of the Sermon on the Mount. So I, I, I think Jesus is probably leaning in that direction. We most often sin or create debt in two major ways, and they're called sins of commission, that's the stuff we do, or sins of omission, that's the stuff we could do that would be good that we just decide not to, Okay? Sins of commission are those sins that we commit through action. And in relation to the Sermon on the Mount, for example, we sin or accrue debt when we harbor anger or bitterness towards other people. When we commit adultery, either actual adultery or the, the act of lusting after other people as if they exist as objects of our pleasure, not as image bearers of the living God. We accrue debt and sin when we try and look religious in order to, uh, to win praise from people instead of selflessly serving people in the background. When we place our faith in material possessions instead of trusting God and when we're judgmental towards other people. Those are examples of sins of, com of commission, things that we do that accrue kind of a sin debt. That's what we're asking forgiveness for. Sins of omission are those sins that we commit by failure to act. So again, if we were just to look at the Sermon on the Mount as kind of a, a starting point, a litmus test, contextualize the Lord's Prayer, we might, um, we might commit the sin of omission when we fail to be salt and light in the world, when we fail to live up to our marriage vows, when we don't follow through with our promises, when our yes is not yes and our no isn't no, when we fail to um, extend our possessions to people in need, and when we withhold love from other people. So, when you and I, when we consider our lives, and I think of, I'll just think of myself, when I hold up my actual thoughts and feelings and actions on a regular basis, and I hold them next to the Sermon on the Mount and the concept of sins of omission and commission, man, it's easy to see that I need help. And I'm guessing that it's pretty starkly obvious that you need help too, <laughs> right? We, we need help. And the scriptures never teach us that we can undo this debt or to cancel it out if we just do enough good deeds that we could cancel out the bad deeds. So God, who we've been calling the relationship at the center of the universe, has not created a system of karma where we seek to balance the accounts of good deeds and bad deeds. No, God has communicated from the beginning in Genesis through Revelation that we need help from outside our broken system, from outside humanity. We need God's forgiveness to set us right. So let's look at that word forgiveness. The word forgiveness in the first century Palestinian world carried with it a spiritual and a material dimension. In fact, the word was often used in the marketplace in reference to debts owed. 
And that actual word means to cancel or to erase the numbers on a bill. So if Chuck is a shop owner and I just bought a bunch of wheat from Chuck and I come to him and I can't pay the final 10% or whatever and Chuck forgives me, he scratches out the ledger. That's what forgiveness means, to make it right, to cancel it out. It is not popular. Do you guys talk about sin with your friends very often? or the debt you accrue to moral society. That's not a conversation I have with most people outside of church, and frankly, I don't have it a lot like that with with people in the church. It's just not popular to talk about sins and, and ethical moral debt in our culture. And because it's not popular to talk about those things, it's also not not popular to talk about forgiveness very often. After all, if we don't recognize our debt, we don't really need forgiveness, do we? don't really need forgiveness. In our culture, we like to tout the word tolerance as kind of a band-aid instead of forgiveness and sin, because that kind of like, oh, you're not that bad. Let's just have tolerance. Uh, And while it sounds like a really nice idea, it really does, and it sounds like a great nice word, it is actually, if you dig down deep into what tolerance is and does and how it works in a society, it actually at its core is dehumanizing, and I'll tell you why. What if, what if Corey, uh, all she had for me when I made mistakes, many mistakes uh, in, our, in our marriage, uh, what if all she had for me was tolerance? And what if I knew deep down that my wife doesn't love me and forgive me, she tolerates me? I don't want to be just tolerated in life. You're like, you might tolerate me. Uh, that's okay, I'm not married to you, but I want... I want to know, like, 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 the ledger's clean, like, we're good, right? Like, we're for each other. I don't want to just be tolerated. Um, N.T. Wright sums up tolerance by writing, tolerance is at its best a low-grade parity of forgiveness. And at its worst, it's a way of sweeping real issues in human life under the carpet. Tolerance never deals with reality. Because when we merely tolerate people, we sort of keep the upper hand. I have the power if I tolerate you, but if I forgive you, it makes us on equal ground. Tolerance, the person who tolerates, keeps the upper hand. We make ourselves superior and the other inferior. To tolerate is not to love or to respect, it's to hold someone at a distance so long as they don't interfere with my life. Now, forgiveness, on the other hand, recognizes like the full harshness that a sin has been committed, that a relationship and trust has been broken. And then forgiveness chooses to say, I choose to love you anyway. I choose to look at the ugliness of sin that tolerance sweeps under the carpet. I look at it in the face, and yet I will, I will treat you with love and respect. I might not trust you right away, right? I mean, forgiveness and restoration, these are different concepts, but forgiveness humanizes another person. Now, let me just take a minute to state the obvious. It kind of smacked me in the face afresh, which I felt was really cool, but look at this, look at the gospel in this prayer that Jesus is having us pray. Jesus, just to set the context again, he's speaking with his disciples who would then go on to lead the church 
and instruct us to live out the Sermon on the Mount, would instruct us to pray this prayer. Matthew wrote it down in his Gospel of Matthew, and he wanted the church to have it for all posterity so that we would follow the teachings of Jesus. Now, just think that through. That same Jesus who tells us to pray to seek forgiveness, he seems to think we're going to need keeping to keep praying this prayer. The fact that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray regularly, forgive us our debt, strongly implies that his expectation is that we are going to continue to need forgiveness even after we start following him, after we're baptized. He is, newsflash, he's not surprised by your sin. It's not shocking to him. You don't have to be like Adam and Eve in the garden and hide from God in shame. He's not surprised. And I pray that you find some comfort in that, comfort in the fact that the Father is not surprised by our failure. In fact, he planned for it by taking the debt on himself on the cross and then inviting us to pray, Father, forgive me, forgive us our debts. Just to show how surprising the Father's grace is, Jesus tells a parable later on in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, about a king with two slaves. And the first slave owed this king 10,000 talents. And I know this Bible money is a funny concept, and it's like, well, I don't talents. I always just think of like bird claws, or tal- those are talons, right? But anyway, um, a, a, a one talent. So this, this guy owed the king 10,000 talents, okay? One talent is equal to 15 years of wages of the average day worker. Let me just throw some numbers at you. It would take 55 million days of work to pay off that debt. That's 150,685 years of working every day of your life. 150,000 years of work. even if you live to 100, that's, you know, you just, it's an impossible debt. In fact, scholars, historical scholars say there probably wasn't 10,000 talents of currency actually minted and in circulation in the first century. And, and so Jesus' point is intentionally ludicrous. Like, this guy owed the king so much he could never repay it. It's, it's insane. And the servant who owed all this money was penitent. He comes in admitting his debt and begging for forgiveness, and the king does something that would be shocking to all of his peers and advisors. He not only forgives the debt, wipes that ledger clean, but he sets the man free. Now that is surprising because a lot of times what would happen is you could erase a debt, but you're at least going to cut your losses and like say, well, at least I'll own this man and his family. They'll be my slaves or I can sell them off for some kind of profit. Yes, I know this debt is too big to pay, but you know, I'll, I'll still stick it to him somehow. But the man forgives the debt, the king forgives the debt and sets him free. Father is like that king. And we're invited to go to him and to ask that our debts be forgiven. That our debts, our sins of omission and commission be forgiven. And remember the hour in this statement that, Father, forgive our debts. 
As a church, we can ask in our own prayers. We can ask for forgiveness for the things that we've done as a church and for the things we've left undone as a church, as Lettered Streets Church, as the Covenant Church, as the church in the world. That's an important thing for us to, to pray about. Forgive us for hoarding your good news. Forgive us for internal fighting. Forgive us for fear and selfishness and seeking our agenda over your agenda. Forgive us, Lord. We can then turn in in this hour and we we can pray as a country and ask for forgiveness for the things we've left undone, for the things that we've done, for abuses of power. Forgive us for holding financial debt over the heads of starving nations and digging ourselves into debt as well. Forgive us for foolishness. Forgive us for placing our comfort over the needs of other human beings. Forgive us for our arrogance and not recognizing your hand in our blessing as if we earned everything. We can pray, our Father, forgive us as a species. Father, forgive us for abusing your planet, for trusting in ourselves over you. Forgive us for looking out for number one instead of looking out for each other. But as we ask for forgiveness on a plural level, we also need to seek forgiveness on a personal level. Father, forgive me for failing to trust you. Forgive me for hurting other people. Sometimes it can feel like we have said and done and left undone such horrendous things that no one, not even the Father, would forgive us. But it's at those moments we remember that the Father and the Son are one and he came and he died for us to take the worst of us and to forgive us. That is the good news. So remember in Jesus' story of the slave who owed more money than even existed in the world, that God is not surprised. And his grace for us continues to surprise and arrest our sensibilities. And I encourage you to ask yourself, today and in the season, maybe during the healing prayer time in a little bit, are there any sins in my life that I'm just refusing to be forgiven for? Like, I'm holding them over my own head. Why? Why do I struggle with God's forgiveness, with really receiving it? it he is not surprised at your sin. Why not allow yourself to be transformed by his surprising grace? You know, it's only when we accept God's forgiveness deep in our core that we can engage the next part of the prayer. Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The fact that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray regularly, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, strongly implies that Jesus expects us to be sinned against. So what does this mean? Is it forgive us our debts to the degree with which we forgive our debtors? Is it forgive us our debts if we only if we forgive our debtors? Is this forgiveness that we're asking for? Is it conditional? I mean, after all, there's this other part of the Lord's Prayer. It comes at the end where it says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your father will not forgive your transgressions. That sounds really conditional and sort of freaky to me. 
Well, it's not. We don't earn forgiveness. If forgiveness is surprising grace, then by its very nature, it cannot be earned. That would be, that would be reciprocity. That would be trust in me or you trusting in you, and there is nothing we could offer God to cover the debt that we owe or that anyone else owes. And in that statement lies the answer. When we truly understand our debt and the power of God's grace, we won't be able to withhold from other people. Jesus talks about this very issue again in that same parable of Matthew 18. That first slave who was relieved of the impossible debt that he owed the king, I mean, he's gotta be so excited to skip in his step, and what would he do? Throw a party? No, he goes to some other dude who owed him a hundred denarii. That's not very much money. That's not even a year's wages. And what he does to this man is horrible. He doesn't create a a payment plan for him. What he does is he puts the man in prison. And in ancient prisons, you had no ability to make money. And so basically, he gives him a life sentence. It's like he's more concerned to stick it to this dude than actually get the money back that he owed him. That man did not fully grasp the concept of grace that he had received from the king. And here's what I think is going on in the Lord's Prayer. John Stott said, God forgives only the penitent. You know, that's a remorseful person. God forgives only the penitent. And one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. It's a forgiving spirit. God only forgives those who are genuinely sorry, not just sorry they get caught. And when you're truly sorry that you've been forgiven, it makes you a more forgiving person. So no matter what words we pray, prayer's not magic, we're not asking for forgiveness if we can't forgive others because we really don't know what forgiveness is. We might be asking God to excuse us, but we're not asking him to forgive us. And when we fail to forgive, we're really asking God for grace for ourselves but justice for other people. When we fail to forgive, we hold on to the hope that our debtors will suffer. And sometimes we mask our lack of forgiveness with, with mercy or tolerance when we put, up, um, we put up with people, but we never extend grace to them. Let me just let that sit for a minute because that's the truth of the scripture. Now, here's another truth that's not any less true. The reality is many of us have deep, deep wounds inside of us that have been caused by other people. And some have been sinned against in such horrendous and unspeakable ways. (laughs) Yeah, you're thinking, don't come at me with this black and white. Some may want to forgive only to find out that the other person doesn't really care if you forgive them or not. They've moved on. (laughs) What do you do then? The fact is that forgiveness is not easy. It's why we pray for it. It takes the power of Jesus. It is costly. It costs Jesus' death on a cross. 
One person wrote, we are most like God when we are forgiving. But God knows our deep hurts, and he is gracious. Forgiveness not only not, doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to trust a person in the same way. Forgiveness does not even guarantee that we have a restored relationship, but there's something else to consider here. Lewis Smedes writes, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to realize that you are that prisoner. When we fail to forgive, we are holding ourselves hostage. When we um, hang on to bitterness and anger and resentment, we are damaging ourselves oftentimes way more than the other person. And Jesus really wants to set us free from that. And maybe you're here this evening and you're dealing with a great pain inflicted by someone else. You can't even imagine wanting to forgive them. Then let your prayer to the Father be, Father, show me how much you have forgiven me. Help me to want to extend that grace to other people. That, you know what? You can only deal with where you're at. It is no use pretending to be religious to start where you're at. All of us should be asking ourselves, who do I struggle to forgive? Who might I be refusing to forgive? And why is that? Why is that? What am I gaining by keeping this grudge alive? What need is that satisfying me, in me, to keep the grudge alive? You might just discover you might just discover a, a can of worms there that you might want to talk about. In just a moment, Joan Youngquist and I are going to come to these kneeling benches, and um, the Wilsons are going to play some music in the background, and we're going to have a time of healing prayer. And this can be a time.